This podcast is not intended to provide medical advice. Please talk to your doctor about any medical concerns. This episode of Untold Stories, Life with a Severe Autoimmune Condition is brought to you by Argenix, a global immunology company committed to improving the lives of people living with severe autoimmune conditions. At Argenix, we listen to patients, caregivers, and advocacy communities to align their aspirations with our innovations in pursuit of a better tomorrow. We welcome this opportunity to honor our commitment by sharing the untold stories of our guests. Hi, everyone, and welcome back for season two of Untold Stories, Life with a Severe Autoimmune Condition. This is a podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Argenix, and I'm your host, Martine Hackett. As you may remember from our first season, I'm an associate professor and director of public health programs at Hofstra University. As a researcher, professor, and public health expert, I've spent my career studying the complex realities of healthcare disparities and the barriers people face. On this podcast, I speak with real people living with a variety of severe autoimmune conditions. Last season, we focused on life with myasthenia gravis, or MG, and expanded the conversation around this often overlooked condition. Having learned so much from our amazing guests, this season, we will be highlighting even more conditions. Every person living with a severe autoimmune condition has a unique story to tell. That's why in each episode, we'll explore how each journey is unique and powerful, emphasizing how community and care are essential parts of each experience. We'll also highlight the importance of self-advocacy and support. Today's episode will focus on MG, but throughout our second season, we'll also hear from people living with conditions like chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy or CIDP and more. To kick off the new season, we'll hear from our first guest, Nicole. As an epidemiologist, she began to research myasthenia gravis after the onset of her symptoms. She brought her concerns to her ophthalmologist, who confirmed her suspicions and diagnosed her with MG. As a wife and new mother, Nicole juggled her MG treatment while holding focus on the health and well-being of her young child— Using her knowledge of public health to navigate her life postpartum, her story is one of resilience and compassion. This episode contains references to postpartum depression and other mental health concerns, so please take that into account before listening. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us today. As somebody who's trained in public health myself, I'm really interested in getting your story and understanding how your background also has informed your approaches to dealing with yeah. MG. So let's start at the beginning. When did you know something was wrong? What were some of your early symptoms and what was that path to diagnosis like for you? Right. So it was May 2021. I woke up one day and I just had some blurry vision and I was like, great, my LASIK's going bad. I had been doing a lot of work looking at screens. So I was just like, okay, I need to just rest my eyes this weekend. And I got some like blue light glasses thinking like, you know, I'm just, it's too much screen time. Did kind of like a screen cleanse that weekend. And it went away after a couple of days. So I was like, great, it must have been that. It worked. And then about three months later... It happened again, significantly worse, and it did not go away. 
And then in addition to the blurry vision, I started having double vision. And so doing what I do as an epidemiologist, I was like furiously researching. Like I kind of had my checklist of things that I wanted to talk with the doctor about once I got there. The ophthalmologist was like, yeah, I agree. It could be the myasthenia, MS, brain tumor. I was like, oh, great. All horrible things. Wow. So, yeah, thankfully they took it really seriously. I went that same day to do blood work. I went the next day to get an MRI. By Friday, I got the blood work back and it was positive for the myasthenia antibody. So I got set up with a neurologist in town and the fun journey began. (laughs) Wow. I mean, and so quickly too, you know, yes. to, so, to get to that point. Yes. And I'm so grateful for that because I know it can take a lot of people years and years and suffering. I was lucky enough that it started with my eyes and it was very abnormal, not just the eyelid drooping or weakness in that kind of area. It was pretty significant um, where, you know, I went to grab the door handle at the eye doctor's office and My husband's like, it's all the way over there. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like I couldn't really, I couldn't function with how bad it was. Nicole's discovery is amazing, but it also highlights one of the first hurdles of living with an autoimmune condition, getting a diagnosis. Ophthalmology is a specific branch of medicine for eyes and vision. With the presentation of ocular issues, a hallmark of NG symptoms, Nicole was set on the proper path to specialized care. Yeah. And so the ophthalmologist was the one to confirm your diagnosis. And this is really the first time on the show that we've discussed Mm -hmm. how an eye doctor can help to understand how to get a diagnosis. So how informed were they about this condition? And did they refer you to a specialist after? Yes. So they did have a neuro-ophthalmologist on staff. So they were kind of familiar with it. I was referred to a neurologist that also specializes in neuro-ophthalmology. And once I was in, I've had, you know, no issues as far as maintaining that and and doing what I need to do. So tell me, what was the immediate impact on your life once you did have that diagnosis of MG? Um, It was definitely a big shock. Just a lot of processing and knowing that being so young, it's you know, my whole life is going to be very different from how I thought it was going to be. Um, I had my son at the time was like a year and a half, just thinking about what that would mean for growing our family in the future and being able to care for him. At that point, it was just ocular myasthenia. So overall manageable, but it it caused me to be very dependent on other people. I had to have my husband drive me everywhere for a long time. Mm -hmm. If it was something with work, thankfully I have kind of like a counterpart that does a different department, but she has to drive to some places as well. If I needed to drive, Mm -hmm. I would be like, Hey, want to come with me, tag along Mm -hmm. and make it part of your, you know, protocol for the year. (laughs) Made it work. My mom is a nurse. Mm -hmm. It's just helped to kind of talk through things with her and work through that. And I think I just killed it with positivity wow. and just was like, okay, we're just, I have no choice. I, mm-hmm. I have to move forward. Nicole is the mother of two young children. Her son, now three and a half, was born before her MG diagnosis. However, during her second pregnancy, Nicole needed to be considerate of her MG when preparing for her daughter's birth. 
Speaking of moving forward, then you had a very different experience with your daughter, who's about five months yes. old now. She just turned six months um, last week. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And so can you tell us what it was like being pregnant and giving birth um, while also managing your MG? Yeah. Yeah. She was very planned. <laughs> um, we wanted to make sure that I took all the precautions I could beforehand. So I got the thymectomy. I waited till I got stable, got the okay from the neurologist and my OBGYN and said, okay, let's just go for this and and hope knowing that I think underlying the whole time was when is the other shoe going to drop that it could get worse again? And is something going to happen to her was I think my biggest concern. So it was, it was definitely a little harder as far as I felt a little more detached throughout the pregnancy Mm. of like, if something happens and then just the worry, underlying worry. Mm-hmm. My body definitely knew before I did that I was pregnant. That's when it started to expand beyond ocular. Mm. I got really bad morning sickness, which really was all day sickness. Right. Wow. I woke up not being able to chew. It was a vicious cycle. Could not eat to combat the morning sickness. Right. So, And it's like another med. And it's just ironic how like in my first pregnancy, I was like, Ugh, I'm not even going to take a Tylenol. Right. Like, I don't need it. I'm fine. And here I am like chugging pills every couple hours and then adding another one overnight. Mm -hmm. But that seemed to do the trick. Got on some meds, you know, add add onto the list for some morning sickness. Mm -hmm. And things were great Um, up until about middle of the second trimester. um, Of course, right before I'm going to like a really big conference for work out of state, I started having a flare up, Mm -hmm. ocular flare up again. And I had my routine at that Mm -hmm. point. So it wasn't horrible, but, you know, it wasn't ideal. Yeah. I had things I wanted to do, and I still did them just with a little bit of a wonky eye. <laughs> um, we made it work. I just listened to my body, which is just hard being a young person of, like, listening to when you need to slow down, I think is, is really uh, one of the hardest parts. <laughs> and like you said, your body was already giving you those signs even before the pregnancy yes. tests were, you know, Yes, useful. yes. And so my, yes, my body knew, my body knew, but... Um, I had been seeing specialists throughout the pregnancy and she was doing so well mm-hmm. and growing really well mm-hmm. and no issues. So I think I definitely started to feel a little bit better about it, but it's always after. But I just kept positive and did the things I wanted yeah. to do. 35 weeks pregnant, went to the Taylor Swift concert what? and <laughs> danced my butt off all night. It was amazing. That's awesome. It was worth it. <laughs> and she was born like about a week and a half later. Wow from that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Swifties are unstoppable, I guess, right? So Yes. (laughs) Listening to Nicole's story, I can't help but be reminded of Jessica from season one and the difficult pregnancy she experienced. A 2016 study published in the American Academy of Neurology Journal suggested that women have an increased risk of clinical symptoms of MG during postpartum. Additionally, the CDC reports that one in eight women experience postpartum depression symptoms. With her own postpartum diagnosis, I can only imagine what Nicole learned about herself during that period. Let's talk a little bit about your postpartum experience and how MG impacted that, specifically talking about postpartum depression. And as we know, is a significant concern for many mothers. Um, How did you cope with postpartum depression and managing your myasthenia gravis? Right. It was probably some of the darkest times of my life. I had her on a Tuesday, which the labor and the delivery part was a dream. Oh, you know, she came very, very fast, unmedicated, you know, just wonderful. 
she was an angel to me and has been since, mm. since then. <laughs> um, and so I went home feeling great. And basically by that Friday, I was like, I can't, I can't carry her. Hmm. You know, I was like, something, something's happening. I can't, I can't lift my neck off the bed. I'm just having a really hard time moving my body. Yeah. It just kept getting progressively mm-hmm. worse. And I asked my husband, I was like, did, did I cry this much last time? Because I know I cried a lot, but I don't think that I cried this much. I just felt mm-hmm. like I couldn't do my job as a mother to do the basic things of care for her. And carry her. I mean, she was only six pounds. Like how much more basic can it get? So I think that really took a toll on me as far as the depression, knowing that the myasthenia was affecting me so much that I just couldn't, I could not even do the bare minimum to care for myself or for her. Mm -hmm. So I knew I needed to get the depression in check and then worry about the myasthenia. So Mm. Thankfully, my OBGYN had started two-week postpartum visits oh, the week before. Okay, because those were some of the yes. new changes, right, with yes. the recommendations. Yes, it, I would have normally had to wait till six weeks or, like, try and call and hassle and whatnot. And I don't know if, if you have a child or have yeah. had those questions asked to you postpartum in the office, you know, that they screen yes. for depression. And I was like— in tears, like, yes, yes, yes all of yes. them. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is a problem. Um, so they gave me a prescription for antidepressant. Mm. And within a week, I was a new person. Wow. And realized that even before the myasthenia, I definitely had some underlying anxiety in general. Mm-hmm. And it really just took the edge off that, took the edge off the stress of the myasthenia as well. Mm -hmm. Empowering myself during my diagnosis of myasthenia really helped to like, this is not right. This is not how I normally feel. This is abnormal. So I need to do something about it. And by being able to be so sensitive to your own body and your own feelings, you're able to then, like you said, take that piece of you that's like, I'm going to take action. Exactly. Yeah. Which is just something that now has come second nature with the myasthenia diagnosis, it, you, you just have to. In terms of thinking about that and listening to your body, what were the signals that you saw that told you you maybe need to slow down? <sighs> yeah, it's hard. The key to myasthenia, they say, is like rest and sleep <laughs> and go slow. And when you have a newborn, that's not it's the like a, opposite. a setting yeah. that you can right. do. Yeah. <laughs> just hold on, so, baby. Hold on. <laughs> exactly. So I think where it really hit me I realized we were downstairs and I was like, I can't get up off the couch. Uh, My medication's not working and I couldn't stand Mm. up. And I was like, you know what? I just need to go to bed. Let's just get upstairs and we'll deal with it tomorrow. And, you know, on Monday I'll call the doctor that we need to get something drastic going. And um, I fell going up the stairs. Oh, gosh. And that's when it hit me. I was like, that's the first time with this diagnosis that I ever was – just like, I, I don't want to die. Oh my gosh. Um, that was probably the lowest point in my life to date. And my husband had to drag me to our room up into my mm. bed. And the angel of a man fed my daughter formula for all her feedings that night, changed her diaper, stayed in her room so I could get rest wow. all night. I'm just forever grateful for him, my sports system here at home and everybody else. Because that's the only thing I could do is I just had to stop and rest my body and 
let other people take over, mm-hmm. which I never would have done before. I had no choice but to ask for help and be blunt about it, what I needed, and feel comfortable doing it. We often say that chronic illnesses don't have to define you. And while that might be true, they do change you. Learning to ask for help can feel like a complete shift in identity. I've always been very independent, very just like to kind of do things on my own, but I had to really hand the reins over a lot more than I ever had in my life. Hmm. And it was nice to know that I could just, okay, relax, and and he's got this. I don't need to be 100% all the time. And to know that that's okay, and that's kind of how it has to be. Yes, yes. But I think it just had that that silver lining effect of like making me a more relaxed Mm. person in general, not so uptight about everything. We're, I'm definitely more, no one in my family would ever describe me as go with the flow. <laughs> that's for sure. Up until this point. Okay. They're like, you may be a little too go with the flow now. And so mm. I'm just, you know, we're just going with it and that's all I can do. We'll be back with more untold stories after a quick break. As a global immunology company committed to improving the lives of people living with severe autoimmune conditions, Argenics is dedicated to serving the Myasthenia Gravis, or MG, community through MG United. MG United was created by Argenics to support those living with MG and their caregivers by providing the latest information, resources, and support to address the unique ways MG can affect their lives. Wherever you are in your Myasthenia Gravis journey, MG United wants to help make today a better day. For more information about MG United, visit mg-united.com. And now, back to untold stories. You talked about what it was like to learn how to ask for help, especially as a young woman. What were some of those challenges of leaning on others or giving up part of that independence? It was just... Things that you never thought you would have to ask for. I had an amazing friend come over just to blow dry my hair because I had used the energy I had for that day to wash it for the first time in probably a week. And she just like, yeah, I'll come over and blow dry. But things you would never think to ask and you would feel bad to Mm -hmm. ask. People brought so much food and just sat with me just to be with me because I just felt an isolation that I had never felt before, even though my husband works from home and he was here. It was just asking people to come over. Hey, just just come on over. And, and they asking did. Asking family. And they did. And they did. And that's when I realized they want to be there for oh, me. They yeah. want to help me. Mm-hmm. And I would just always have so much guilt, especially like if it involved like a financial ask. Like I had no desire to pump whatsoever in the beginning. I just felt like that's the last thing I want to do. And my aunt was like, I'll, you know, if you need something, let me know. I was like, you know what? I am going to ask you for a portable pump. That way I can sit comfortably. I'm not attached to the wall. You know, things like that. We hired my doula postpartum. Awesome. To help with my daughter's visits while I went to medical appointments Mm -hmm. or just took a break. And she was just so amazing for for all of that. Doulas really are angels. (laughs) I know. They they really are. She is just wonderful. And she normally doesn't do postpartum visits like that, but... Mm -hmm. I think I was a pathetic enough situation no. to like, <laughs> she probably, she probably could use some help. <laughs> That's part of their scope of practice. It's okay. Right. Yeah. But thank goodness 
my neurologist really listened to me after that falling situation. I called him as soon as their office Mm -hmm. opened after Memorial Day. And I was like, I need, I need something urgently. Like, I don't want to go to the ER. It's not that bad. Like I can breathe okay. But if I don't get something now, it's going to be bad. We did plasmapheresis. I did that for the first time. After four days, I cannot even explain. Like, I forgot what it was like to feel normal and to not have to think about this illness every day. I went medication-free for like a month. My life changed. I could carry my daughter. Mm -hmm. I went out and took her places. Even just going for a walk before, I would have been like huffing and puffing, trying to catch my breath when I'm normally a very active or I used to be a very active person. Plasmapheresis is a therapeutic intervention method that uses a centrifuge or filtration system to remove and replace blood plasma. The exchange helps to improve muscle strength within days, but usually only lasts for a few months. These treatments would be vital for a mother of a newborn who consistently needs to be held at all hours of the day or night. And anyone who's parented a newborn can tell you that there is simply some exhaustion that no plasma transfer or pill can counteract. Obviously, parenting while dealing with chronic illness can be demanding. How has your diagnosis affected this parenting journey that you're now on? What works for you for managing both your health and responsibilities as a mother? For managing my limitations with my older son, I think he's starting to understand now. How old is he now? He is three and a half. Mm -hmm. So I think he's understanding just the concept of Mommy needs to rest her body because I tell that to him too. You know, I think it's time to rest your body. Let's go take a nap. So he understands of like, yeah, my body's feeling tired. But there are times where, yeah, I have to say, okay, dad's got to wrestle with you. I can I can do this craft, but not that. Um, mm. Negotiating. I can't carry you down the stairs, but I can hold your hand. Mm. He's very understanding of that. And I try to say, you know, tomorrow, you know, we'll do this. But today, you know, mommy's a little tired. With my daughter, I we really had that rough start. Yeah. And I did not have that immediate connection with her. Mm-hmm. But through work, I got donated an extra two months of leave. Oh my gosh. From your coworkers? I know. From my coworkers. Wow. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this many people liked me. And <laughs> it just I was so grateful because it allowed me to kind of get a redo of that first month that was just hell. And yeah. I felt like I couldn't enjoy the experience of being her mom, and and it allowed me to get some time back and really just enjoy our day-to-day. But we make it work. It's just I let him know what I can do in the moment, mm-hmm. and he seems to just kind of go with it. It's such a great way to, like, build empathy and for him to, like, really early on just to understand, yes. you know, like you said, other people's feelings, other people's limitations. Yes, and I have heard that from his teacher's He's just the sweetest little boy, and I'm so grateful that, you know, he's just kind of going with it. It's just the cards were dealt. Yeah, and I'm sure he's a great big brother, too. He, uh, the love he has for this girl mm-hmm. just melts my heart. He's going to be her protector, for sure, I think. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. So sweet. Nicole's work as an epidemiologist is mostly centered around food and waterborne diseases. While not doctors themselves, epidemiologists study incidents that lead to the cause and spread of disease. Her medical background also gave her advantages in working with her doctors. For example, when most people experience a symptom, they go to the emergency room. But Nicole knew immediately her double vision was cause to see an ophthalmologist. 
Even so, there are some things her training could not account for. What are some aspects of this journey that you could not have pictured having navigated without this background that you had? I think feeling comfortable talking to medical providers Mm -hmm. and just knowing how to speak to them, kind of speak their language is definitely a privilege that I have, you know, having the background in public health, knowing how to read my own medical records Mm -hmm. and knowing what they mean and my own lab results and knowing for the most part what they mean. I'm not a doctor, but you know, I've seen more records than I would like to in my (laughs) life, but, um, just kind of having at least a better understanding of procedures and different things like that has really been very beneficial. To give you that context, it sounds like, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That context to know what's happening. That's it, right? That confidence and the ability to see that these physicians are your peers, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, I don't think it should be like this, but I think it lends them to them once they find out what I do in my profession, I think explaining things a little more in medical terms and not trying to make it more basic and really talk to me as a counterpart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it definitely affects, you, like you said, how and how you are able to address that information as well to understand. Right. It. And as we know, living with a chronic condition can be emotionally challenging on an individual level. So how did your public health training, recognizing looking at the big picture is what we are kind of trained to be able to do, how did that inform mm-hmm. your approach to the mental and emotional aspects of living with myasthenia gravis? Just the big picture, I was like, I have to do something to, I can't fix this. I can't cure this. And, you know, I'll take my treatment day by day, but I want to try to be engaged, be involved, or be as helpful as I feel I can with the limitations I have of working full time to children, you know, just regular life. So I do participate in like market research to provide information to hopefully benefit others. And that's why I wanted to, you know, talk on this podcast to hopefully help somebody because I didn't find a ton of information when I was pregnant. And it's a small margin of people that have the myasthenia, but then to get pregnant, it's an even more narrow margin. You can't ever have too much information as an epidemiologist. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, right? And to be able to sort through it. And it sounds like also, in particular, the postpartum experience too, you know. Exactly. To really know like the day-to-day, what is that like? Yeah, because I was posting on like a Facebook group for pregnant women with myasthenia, like what can I expect and what, you know, any ideas or and what, you know. And so I shared my story on there and what happened after to hopefully help others, at least guiding. I know it's very Mm -hmm. unique person to person, but... I mean, this is what goes back to thinking about public health, right? Is that we're dealing with these populations, but yet when Mm -hmm. we have these conditions that, you know, we don't necessarily study because they perhaps affect fewer folks, but for the Mm -hmm. people who are going through it, it's real. It's their world. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's our whole world. So I love seeing now that there's more research out there on it. I found the podcast and I was like, oh my gosh, people are talking about this. And I was like, shared it with everybody that I knew. I was like, you all need to listen to this. Everybody needs to know because I know I'm one of many who probably have struggled in silence for too long. I mean, other than my close family and coworkers that I see regularly, Mm -hmm. this is my coming out moment here. This podcast is going to be 
sharing it, you know, with the world. And as they say, Facebook official, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, Welcome to the other side, Nicole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> According to research conducted by Johns Hopkins Medicine, MG is more likely to occur in young women between the ages of 20 and 30 and older men over the age of 50. While there isn't a conclusive number of women with MG, family planning is a very important life decision women must consider alongside their MG diagnosis. One of the reasons why this series was created was to help highlight and empower different autoimmune communities. At that intersection are parents learning to plan for families, manage expectations, and even grow a chosen family. Nicole, you shared some really powerful moments about MG and how it dramatically affected you shortly after the birth of your daughter. Mm -hmm. Was there a particularly low moment of dealing with postpartum that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah. I mean, obviously, aside from the physical things and just the emotional of like, is she better off without me? Do I deserve her? Like, Mm -hmm. she's perfect. She started sleeping through the night. At like three months. Wow. And no, I was like, well, she knows because if she doesn't sleep, you know, she's going to kill me. <laughs> um, so I just was like, I I had very low feelings of like, I don't even deserve her. Like she deserves such a better mom who can care for her. And that's what my therapist likes to call stinking thinking. Um, and so to kind of undo myself from that and like call myself mm-hmm. out. Nope, that's not helpful. Yeah. She is right where she belongs. And she got the perfect mom for her. Yes, exactly. There's no better mom for her than me. So that was probably the lowest point. But to be a little vain for a minute, the hardest part other than caring for my children has been not recognizing myself in photos. Hmm. I cannot smile like I used to. Mm -hmm. I don't have any pictures from my baby shower saved or printed anywhere Hmm. because you know, one eye was this way and I couldn't smile right. And so I just don't like looking at them. And my mom will never let me live this down for talking about it. But one time in 2007, Taylor Swift told me I had a nice smile. And so that gets me down all the time. of like, (laughs) oh, I can't smile like that, like how I used to. So it's just the little things too that really Mm -hmm. add up. Seems to me, I don't know much about Taylor Swift, but it seems to me that she would love you no matter what. I, I would, I would think so. You know, I'm <laughs> fully committed. So, but yeah, it's just, it's a full range of little minute things like that, yeah. all the way to the full gamut of inadequate motherhood. You know, and I'm so grateful that I asked for help, um, and it was able to move past that depression. Not to say that it's perfect. There are days that I cry. It's just a day-by-day journey and making the best of it. I definitely, through that, have realized I need to do the things when I can mm-hmm. and make the most of the time with my family. We're just doing as much as we can. Visit friends that I haven't seen since before wow. COVID. I oh. was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to regain my postpartum and, you know, claim it. Yeah, own it. Exactly. And look at you. And you're absolutely doing it. And Nicole, I really appreciate this time that you gave us today and to share your story and to step on this side, as you mentioned, of really sort of being public about your MG journey. And I know that what you shared with us today is going to help a lot of people. 
Well, thank you so much. That is like, I'm going to like be brought to tears back because that's all I ever want. Like I obviously don't do the job for money. Um, I do it, you know, because I enjoy it and it's a passion Mm -hmm. and to help people and to educate people. And if I can even help one person with this information, I'm beyond grateful. Beautiful. It really is public health work. I didn't think about it like that, but it really, really is by sharing this. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. It was so great listening to Nicole talk about her experience, and I especially love being able to nerd out with her as a fellow public health researcher. Nicole's story underscores how knowledge helps with understanding autoimmune conditions, but it doesn't remove the emotional trauma of dealing with them. Experiencing these emotions is such an important part of coping with MG or any other autoimmune condition. Thanks for listening. We'll be taking a short break through the new year. So join us again in three weeks on January 17th. Untold Stories, Life with a Severe Autoimmune Condition is produced by Ruby Studio from iHeartMedia in partnership with Argenics and hosted by me, Martine Hackett. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha. Our EP of post-production is Matt Stillo, along with supervising producer Sierra Kaiser and post-producer Sierra Spreen. This episode was written and produced by Tyree Rush.